When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stephen Jones from the Sunday Times with a special edition of The Ruck, and it's a serious tone. Last weekend, World Rugby ran a Keep Rugby Clean campaign, warning players about the dangers of taking performance-enhancing substances. Rugby says that it is still reasonably clean, but is that true? Last week, athletics was back in the mire when Alberto Salazar, the great marathon runner and former coach to Mo Farah, was banned for four years. Is rugby as clean as we think? Well, my friend and colleague David Walsh has a sense of these things as sharp as anyone in the world. Luckily, David is only two floors down in the same Tokyo hotel. And I spoke to David about his career, Lance Armstrong, Alberto Salazar, and whether he thinks rugby is as clean as a whistle. David Walsh is our chief sports writer, famous for what I consider to be not only one of the most famous sports investigative stories, but in my opinion, one of the investigative stories of all time. It exposed Lance Armstrong, a winner of seven Tour de France, as a drug cheat and a really reprehensible drug cheat at that. And after one of the greatest and most tenacious um, investigations, he was exposed. And there's a book and a film about the whole story. The book, Seven Deadly Sins, Sparing David's Blushes, is not only the, the best account of it, but one of the finest sports books written. It's interesting to hear David's views because rugby, in my opinion, would be very susceptible to drugs, cheats, and people trying to build themselves up for the mass conflagration that rugby is at the moment. We'll come to that in a minute. David, at the other end of your career, uh, uh, scraping the barrel, I understand you've also ghosted Lawrence Delalio's columns. Which was the more difficult, um, exposing Armstrong or trying to make sense of Lawrence? I, did, I actually enjoyed working with Lawrence. We, we had a lot of fun doing that book, It's in the Blood. Because, in, to be fair to Lawrence, he, he'd had a pretty interesting life. He was pretty forthcoming about it, and no, I enjoyed it. It was a, a bit of a journey for Lawrence, that book, and I spent a lot of time down in his house. But I think at the end, we produced a book that it sold a hell of a lot of copies, Lawrence's book did. And uh, I mean, in a way, he was my employer. He was paying me to do it. And I would have to say that I found him an extremely generous employer. And that really does, you know, it does count for a lot. 
because whatever you say about Lawrence, without trying to be too complimentary, he's, he was a big man physically and he's a big man spiritually. David, people don't realise this, but when you and I first met, and for a long time before that and after, rugby was your number one sport. You played it at home and um, that, that was what you did. Yes, it was. Yeah, when I started out as a as a young journalist in Dublin back in 1980. I mean, I quickly became a rugby correspondent. I was a rugby correspondent for the Sunday Tribune. I was rugby correspondent. I did a, just did a hell of a lot of rugby. You know, the, I met you, Steve, first at the 1987 World Cup final. Oh, well, at the 1987 World Cup, which was the first. And I actually sat beside you for the Wales All Blacks semi-final. And remember you saying to me that you loved it when New Zealand got a penalty. <laughs> you loved it because that consumed two minutes of the match. Uh, yeah. and, and it was two minutes in which the All Blacks couldn't score a try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted them to kick to touch so they couldn't <laughs> score a try and then take a shot. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no. That, that's how it felt. That, that's but, really how it felt. Yeah, but I did cover a lot of rugby in those days. And then I kind of, kind of in a way, drifted into being a general sports writer, because I was always interested in other sports. But you've actually got an incredible facility to be an expert in, in a lot of sports. I mean, if I said to you the, the unfair question, because you love your racing, you love your uh, cycling, you love your football, which is still your best, your most beloved sport? I stopped thinking like that a long time ago, because what I realised was that when I was at Cheltenham for the start of the festival it was Tuesday and you had that roar at Presbury Park as the tape went up for the first runners there's a big roar mm. I, I, there's always a thought in my head this is where I most want to be it, you know it, in life at this moment nowhere else in the world but I feel the same when when Ireland play England at Twickenham mm. I, I actually feel the same if I go to a a really good Premier League game, and there's a sense of anticipation in the ground. I used to love going to the old White Hart Lane, I would have to say. I thought that was the most atmospheric <coughs> stadium in the Premier League. And when the match is about to start, you think, oh, God, I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So it's... It, look, I mean, I'm, I go to the Masters now most years, and when you're there, you think, this is it, this is the number one. So really what it is is big events. I mean, when when there's going to be, hopefully, World Cup semi-finals involving hopefully Ireland or England or Wales, and when they're playing one of the Southern Hemisphere teams in a World Cup semi-final, that's the place you want to be on that particular day. So it's not a question of a favourite sport, but it, it's loving being at those big occasions. That's a great answer, which I share with you. I've not been to remotely the number of big occasions, but I find myself thinking, blimey, rugby was always number one for me, but you see all these other great sports, and it's difficult for me to think that myself in, in a way. Can I just ask you, you, unlike some of the other dukes of uh, the greats of uh, newspapers, you've been here since day one at the World Cup. A bizarre and, and a lovely experience for me. What have you thought of the World Cup to date, on and off the field? Yeah, um, I mean, I do have some context here because I've covered every World Cup there's ever been in rugby. And in my view, this is the best. And, and I would say the best by some distance. The organisation has been amazing. The stadia have been fantastic. And, and, and how that translates into a great World Cup is that this World Cup has made every game feel a little bit special. I have to admit, I do not like watching a rugby match where one team scores eight tries and the other team scores none. Or the other, one team scores 11 tries as the All Blacks did last night and the other team doesn't score any. But yes, you know, even those kind of games at this World Cup have had something. I mean... We watched the All Blacks 
you know, and their 11th try is the one we're all talking about. And it's not like Namibia rolled over and allowed him that try because I would argue the Namibian fly half's attempt to stop that try was one of the great cover tackles. Perfectly executed with tremendous commitment and, and technical proficiency and Paranara still got the ball down. I mean, but that's why I think this World Cup has been on a, on a different level to all the others that every game has seemed like a big occasion. There's been no empty spaces in the crowds uh, and there's been no stadia that didn't look up to the standard of a World Cup venue. They've all looked good and and being on the ground and getting to the stadia here, the organisation has been terrific. I mean, I remember for the uh, going to the Ireland-Scotland game and, and walking out of Yokohama Station and, and of course, as a pressman, I would see it like this, but media shuttle here. Somebody with a sign standing in exactly the right place, mm. guiding you to the media shuttle. Now, it's only three quarters of a mile, but they t- they take you from there down to the press entrance. And that kind of organisation has been has been on a different level, in my view, to the organisation for every previous World Cup. And, and there, there is a culture clash here because they don't do things remotely like we do in, on some occasions. It's quite interesting when the cultures do clash. For instance, 11pm at night, you don't have drinking up time, you, you, you're shoved out. But that, that's yes. just a small small thing, of course. Yes, but, um, yeah, it is. The, the, the culture clash, now and again there's aggravations, but is that all part of the fascination? Part of the fascination. I mean, what you say is absolutely right. They kick you out of the press room, at a, I don't know, for four hours after the match. Now, if Japan had beaten Ireland, I was at that game. And the Japanese journalists, a rose of them. I mean, I've never seen so many rugby writers from one country in a press room as Japanese rugby writers were in that press room. Mm. And they're all pleading with the... It's a woman who's who's running the centre, the media centre. They're pleading with her to stay. And she's saying, no, no. But the way we do it in this country is if we say we're going to close at nine o'clock mm. at night, we close. Mm. So they all get turfed out. And I'm walking back to the station because this match was in Shizuoka. I'm walking back to the station and I see all the Japanese journalists sitting under bits of light, sitting on bits of grass. There's actually fantastic artistic monuments that were built, works of art, I think 16 of them, that were built on the way from the station to the ground for Mm. the 2002 Football World Cup. And there are guys sitting on those works of art with their laptops open, um, doing their reports on their, you know, um, connected to the internet by their their, um, telephones. And I'm thinking, wow, this is like now half ten at night. It's pitch dark. I had this kind of. I looked at them, and literally, mm. their fingers are dancing on their on their keyboards. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing. And and you could see they felt they were reporting on a story. They uh, they are they were writing a story they would remember for a long, long time. And uh, so even though they were kicked out, it kind of it gave me. A memory I will have for a long time, the way they found every every place they could sit to work. They just sat and worked. And, of course, with the temp- with the climate over here, you could mm. do that half, half ten at night and, and not freeze. Would um, the, the fact that you've only got four hours in the press room to write your stuff, wouldn't that impact on your normal operation speed? Yes, it would, yeah. When it comes to uh, producing stories after a game, I, I'm probably the slowest. There's Nick Kane. yeah. But I'm I'm up there. I'm definitely a contender. It would and four hours should be plenty. But you know, when you give certain journalists four hours, they take four hours and fifteen minutes. You give them six hours, they take six hours and a half. Of course we do. Of yeah. course we do. David, you've spent um, a long time, books, uh, interviews, 
uh, a tour of, of theatres, etc., talking about um, Armstrong. And it's almost like, uh, you know, asking Jeff first about his hat-trick. It, it, you must have said, um, discussed it millions of times. But where does it sit now in, 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 in your head when you look back at all those things, the, the things that affected your, your, your life and your family, the abuse you suffered from Armstrong and other people who wanted to believe in him as a cancer survivor or also wanted to believe in, in his cycling. Where does it sit in, in, in your head now? Because you should be feeling the most unbelievably deep feeling of satisfaction that you, you, you opened the book and you shut the book as well. When I look back on it, um, I think that was a great time. God, I, I, I love that. And people say, but come on, it must have been tough for you and your family because you were being got at all the time. You were being called a liar. You were being called this. You were being called that. It never bothered me. It really didn't. I was a kind of on a bit of a crusade and, uh, and I loved it. I loved the fact that, you know, I've got a new lead about Armstrong. I've heard that so-and-so said something in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Stephen Swart, how can I get down to New Zealand to talk to him? And it just was all consuming and it was really exciting. And the, the way I liken it to when people say, yeah, but it must have been tough. Now, this is a much smaller version. Or a much, uh, I'm not, it's not on the scale of Watergate. But if you look at the film, All the President's Men, and you see um, Bob Woodward and, 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 and Carl Bernstein, you know, on the case of Richard Nixon, trying to get the information that will bring down the president. They're not like going home to their wives or going home and, 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 and saying how worried they are about this. They're actually more motivated than they've ever been in their lives. I got invited to France to do a talk somewhere. And it was Italy, actually. And the fellow speaker, a fellow speaker at this dinner was Carl Bernstein, who obviously uh, was the Watergate journalist. And I, I, I met him and I said, look, I've always felt, I've always felt that you guys, yourself and Woodward, were having the time of your lives during Watergate. And because I felt similarly about, mm. he knew about Armstrong, all of that. Mm. And he said, absolutely. He said, we knew at that time there was never going to be another Nixon in our lives. And I knew at that time there was never going to be another Armstrong. And I was always conscious, whatever happened, my career as a journalist would always be associated with Armstrong. Mm. And I, I do say, I mean, obviously I knew and people you knew, Steve, because from, from all the conversations we would have had at that time, everybody who was close to me knew that Armstrong was a fraud. Mm. But if it hadn't actually been publicly acknowledge that he was a fraud if he didn't actually admit it himself in the end it would have been a less satisfying experience for me I suppose but but at the same time I knew if I was on my rocking chair at the age of 88 and I had a great grandson who came to me and said great grandpa were you once a journalist Mm. and I would have said yes I was and if he'd said did you do anything exciting and and I'm and I'm left, and I've only got one word left to say. I would have said Armstrong. But did, did, uh, talking about com- comparison with Bernstein, they never actually, until the time of Deep Throat, got one massive great chunk of evidence. That weren't they doing the same as you, just casting around for everybody, yeah. flying down to far Florida to see someone? That's right. Knocking on someone's door. It, it, it's almost like you 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 start from the bottom and work up. You don't get some great. A massive sensation at the top of the story. No, no, you don't. I remember the first real breakthrough I got in Armstrong. This came like 2001, two years after I started. And um, the first big breakthrough was um, 
Uh, I had a friend, Sandra Donati, still a friend of mine initially. He was involved with doping investigations. He'd helped the police. And I said, I said, Sandra, I think Armstrong is working with this doping Dr. Michele Ferrari. Mm. I said, I know you've got friends in the police. Is there any way we could check it up? And uh, Sandra said, well, I, I'll ask the police, could they check it up, the Carbonari? The Carbonari said, well, if Armstrong has gone to Michele Ferrari's town, Ferrara, he will have booked into the two best hotels. And the cops sent two local DCs, two local coppers, to the two best hotels, and they said, show us your registrar. Hmm. And they got, the, they got the, the, the register of guests for the previous two years, and Armstrong's name was all over it. Uh, the cops got them to, to do a photocopy of Armstrong's name and the nights he stayed. And those A4 pages came in a fax to me, and seeing those coming, off the, coming out of the fax machine, the name of the hotel, Armstrong's name, we were like, that's it, we've cracked it. We were only about... 12 years away from crashing <laughs> but it seemed at the time it was the first crack <laughs> yeah it seemed at the time that this was it yeah. you know I, I could now prove he worked with the doping doctor yeah. story over and uh, all Lance had to say was I believe Mikel is an honest man and everybody believed Lance and I was a bad guy yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay well that, that that's that's called uh, I think that's called journalism of mm-hmm. the highest order David it, it's a restless business because as early as as recently as this Sunday in our paper you commented, or your brother, you carried on the story of Alberto Salazar, the great athlete and, and the great coach, part of the Nike project, which involves a huge number of big athletes, banned for four years. And you wrote about the implications of, of this odd man who who gave people prescription drugs when they didn't have prescriptions, who, who tried to sort of almost come up with different drugs by combining them and, and measuring performance and all that sort of thing, and then eventually has, has been banged to rights. The first question is, was that always a, a, a target which you thought would end as it has? Um, I didn't think they would that the United States Anti-Doping Agency would get Salazar as well as they've got him. I think it was a brilliant investigation. I think Travis Tiger, the the head of United States Anti-Doping Agency, is the guy really who who, who nailed Armstrong in the end. Um, He's now nailed Salazar. And I think something we should consider here, this is an American anti-doping agency knocking American heroes. Mm. If Alberto Salazar was this brilliant coach in Britain or in Ireland, would we bring him down? Mm. If Lance Armstrong had been British and he'd won seven Tour de France's or had been Irish and won seven Tour de France's, would he have been brought down by people in his own country? I don't think so. Now, what Salazar was doing was very organised cheating. And the way he cheated was, basically, he was looking for legal drugs to use them in a way that were never intended. Mm. In other words, the... Thyroid drugs, which will... If you've got an underactive thyroid, you, you can take tyroxine or different brand-name drugs to get your metabolism working quicker. That will help you to lose weight. Now, what happens if you go to Salazar and your thyroid is fine? It's not... He'll convince you and his doctor will convince you that your, that your thyroid isn't fine. Yeah. And you get the drug even though you don't need it. Now, that, that's cheating. And basically, the United States Anti-Doping Agency went after him. They got documents and they, they organized a really good campaign in that, in that they went after Salazar on the things they could get him on. There was loads of witnesses. And somebody made the point that Salazar has been got, like Al Capone, 
He might have committed murders, but in the end they get him for, for, for income tax irregularities. That's what they've done. They've got him on small stuff, but there was big stuff going on in the background. Now, it should be said, the Sunday Times Insight team did a really good investigation about Al-Carnitine to supplement. That was the first crack. Mark Daly, Panorama, BBC, David Epstein, ProPublica, two outstanding journalists, took the case on and brought it seriously forward. The United States anti-doping agency. See, that's what happens now. Mm. The journalists do the stories, and then the United States anti-doping agency picks up the baton and says, look, this, the allegations in this story are too serious. We, we have to investigate. That's what happened with the, with the great Russian conspiracy. Fatali Stepanov you know, works with a German journalist, Heio Seppelt, and the World Anti-Doping Agency moves in after that. And I think the point here, Stephen, I know you'll agree with this, is that good journalism is very expensive, but it's also very important. Mm. I mean, we've, we've mentioned Salazar. But I think you know, journalism had a, played a part in the Armstrong story. There's no question journalism has played a huge part in the exposure of the Russian conspiracy, all their doped athletes. So people should understand that you know, they can go on social media and they can read everybody's opinion. But if you want to find out what's wrong in the world... Well, that's where good journalists come in. I mean, out of this Salazar story now, Kate, my eldest, rang me last night and we were chatting. And she said, Dad, I read your Salazar story. You've got to go after Nike now. You know, Mm. they have a corporate responsibility to not cheat. That's what they tell their employees, that they're doing things in the right way and they're not. They should not be allowed away with this. And that's what journalism can do. It can hold people to account. And thank God we still have it. And thank God we still have it and hopefully we'll keep it. Because for everyone from Marie Colvin to to yourself and to all the whistleblowers and all the the journalists, you have to be there and you have to be on top of it. You certainly couldn't do it from a, a room yeah. in your social media department. That, that's just one of my, no. one of my biases, but that's, that, that's no, what No, I agree. I mean, I, I don't know if you've been reading all that uh, Boris Johnson, Jennifer Curie stuff. I mean, it's been salacious, of course, but it's also been re- because it speaks to power and the abuse of power. Yeah. I think it's been tr- terrific work by, and, by Sunday Times Insight and I, I'm really proud to be a Sunday Times um, yeah. a, a colleague of these guys and, and of yourself because they're, they're still keeping the old traditions alive, which oh, is wonderful. Tr- tremendous, which yeah. Which is wonderful. yeah. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information One more question. From what I've learned about, about doping and, and, and cheating over the years from you and from everybody else, rugby would seem to be an ideal ground because you need to train harder, you need to be bigger, you need to be harder, faster, you need to bounce back from injury quicker, you need that edge all the time. And uh, I would have thought, uh, I mean, I am absolutely amazed that there have been so few or even none positive tests amongst the true elite athlete. Why is that? And am I being hopelessly naive? Well, uh, uh, yes, Steve, hold on. We have had some pretty significant positives in the not-too-distant past. I mean, Afoway Dianti is not here. Well, no. he, he was injured anyway. He wasn't going to make the, the, the South Africa squad. But this is the breakout player of the year in 2018, who's now you know provisionally suspended from mm. rugby because of a positive test. Now, I did make the point in a piece I did for the Sunday Times saying, if this had happened in football, the best young player in the world had tested positive. It would have been a huge story. Mm. Somehow, I feel that rugby just... It's like... I don't know if it's rugby's middle-class kind of roots in a way in, in, in many countries where they don't want to kind of consider that this actually may speak to a very significant problem in South Africa mm. because we have the we have the positive tests from Craven Week. There mm. have been other... Chile by Radapelli. Yeah. yeah, has tested positive twice or three times. Mm. I give tremendous credit to the South African anti-doping body that goes to Craven Week mm. and does rigorous, pretty rigorous testing, but are finding you know, significantly you know, high percentage of positive tests. Now, that kind of testing at schools level, it's something that we really would like to see mm. across the rugby world because... In, England, in Britain and Ireland? Yeah, yeah, mm. in Britain. I mean, I gave a talk at an independent school. I remember saying at one point, I, I, there was a Q&A afterwards, and this boy asked me a question about, would it not be better to treat rugby like Formula One and let people do whatever they like? They can take their drugs. I said, look, you're now 17 years of age. Let's say you're 47 and your son is going to this school. And he's been offered a contract with some premiership club. Mm. But he's told he has to get bigger. So he says, Dad, I'm going to have to take steroids. I said, what are you going to say to your son? And the the 17-year-old said, I would tell him not to do it. And I said, but you just advocated everybody being allowed to take what they... Why would you have a different set of moral values for everybody else's kids? And he kind of acknowledged that, yeah, he was wrong. And I saw four boys giggling, and and they were all tall and, Mm. and big. And I kind of knew they were rugby players. I asked somebody afterwards, why were the boys giggling? And he said, well, we had our rugby controversy here, doping controversy. 
And I said, really? This kid was going away for his Easter break or his Christmas break and he left a, he left a rucksack in his room. And out of the rucksack fell a pills in a packet. And the lady who was doing the room noticed what they were. They were anabolic steroids. And this kid was on the school's team. I think he was a really decent player. And the school reported it to the RFU and he got a, the kid got a two-year ban. Now, that's in England. And so the one thing we can't do is get presumptuous about it. My feeling is that rugby doesn't have a significant or a huge problem. Mm. And, 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 and the difference between, between rugby and, say, a sport like cycling is that all the people who are now running teams in cycling, not all of them, but most of them, were dopers themselves. They come from a doping culture. Rugby doesn't have many people who dope themselves as players mm. and organise their doping programme. So people aren't kind of um, steeped in the tradition of doping. You're saying they wouldn't know where to start, really, in terms of masking it and all, all that. Yeah, and it's just not something that they would think of doing. Now, of course, a lot of the younger players now are coming through gyms. And once they go to gyms, they get exposed to people using anabolic steroids. And gyms mm. are dangerous places for impressionable kids. And I would be, I'd be watching a lot of those you know, schools teams very closely. I'd, I'd find a way of testing them. Um, because the thing about testing is it does actually work. It's not, it's not, it doesn't mean that 100% of those who cheat are going to get caught. It means that it's a significant deterrent. There is mm. a chance of getting caught. I mean, Deanti now in, in, in South Africa has got to deal with his situation. Mm. I mean, there was three banned substances found in his urine. That's going to take a hell of a lot of explaining. You know, it rules out a lot of, you know, if it had been one substance, you could talk about contamination. Mm. But three substances, you can't talk about contamination. My feeling is that if we look around all the teams in this World Cup, have some of the people been involved in some kind of doping? It's some of them, small minority. Is there any country about whom you would have a suspicion? Well, what we've learned about South Africa has to make us very conscious that there could be a problem there. I think what we've learned about France is that there's a culture of over-medicalisation in France. Now remember, Alberto Salazar's doping centre, if you want to call it, or his doping culture at the Oregon Project, that was about over-medicalisation. That's, that's a bit what the French do. Corticosteroids for every problem you've got. Yes. And, and, it's, uh, and you can do that and get away with it for quite a long time. And I do think that rugby has been really cavalier in its use of painkillers. Yes. And I know that people in, in England would say, well, what do you mean? I mean that the drug tramadol, it's still allowed, but it's a very serious painkiller that has the potential to be addictive. I think that's overused in English rugby. There are uh, premiership players who use tramadol. That's known because when the premiership players go outside of the premiership and go to other leagues, they say, w w where's the tramadol? They've been used to taking tramadol. And I don't think that's a good thing. That's just too big a painkiller to be used by sportsmen. Right. I mean, in, in cycling, they say that it impairs your... Judgment. Does it make you play rugby when you sh when you're really not fit to? Yes, uh, yes, it does. It, it, because it takes away pain. That's saying to you, don't play. Yeah. But it also it impairs your judgment a bit because it's an opiate, mm. tramadol, and it it basically you won't be quite as you may not be a shop in cycling. They they really don't want the riders taking it because they feel that they're more likely to crash. Now, 
rugby is one sport where you want to be your absolute sharpest with uh, with the extent of the physical collisions but tramadol is used and and that kind of medicalization really is the thin end of the wedge you know from there as happened with uh, Salazar's Oregon project you start by messing around with thyroid drugs and then you wonder how much testosterone could you take and still not get caught mm, mm. Uh, and it's 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 uh it's a dangerous route to go to, just to summarize what we think about rugby you're fairly sanguine that the, 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 there's not a huge problem at the elite end but you're also saying honestly at even at lower levels you can't test enough you can't do enough testing no no you can't and the testing must go on and um i would like to think that i know it's expensive but there's a lot of rugby coming into, you know, certainly the English league and the French leagues. Mm. I have a lot of. I would like to think that every player was going to be guaranteed to be tested three or four times a year. Yeah. And you wouldn't have to be an international. You know that any player in a first team squad who's earning a decent wage is guaranteed to be tested three or four times a season. That's not the case now. It would be good if it was. I mean, some players will get tested that amount. Someone might not get tested at all. You know, and that's not good enough. But that deterrent needs to be there. And one of the things that rugby players should acknowledge is that they're getting away likely in comparison to people in Olympic sports. In other words, if rugby as a a 15-a-side game was an Olympic sport, Mm. all the rugby players would have to sign up to a whereabouts system. So Mm. in other words... They would be tested at home. They could be tested when they're on holidays. They could be tested on Christmas Day. They could have all of that level of testing. And that would give people like you and I more confidence that the system was robust. As it is now, they're tested at the the training ground and they're tested on, on match days. But... That's not enough. If you want a system that really gives you the best chance hmm. of deterring people from committing anti-doping offences, you, you have the potential to test them you know, every single day of their lives. David, I'll ask you one more question. Salazar, will you be taking Kate's advice? Yeah, certainly on Nike. I think uh, Kate's advice was absolutely right. Nike should not be allowed to get away with this. Lauren Fleshman, who was a former Nike athlete, she put out a few messages on social media last week that I thought were magnificent. Hmm. She said, Nike puts its swoosh on time bombs. And when the time bombs blow up, Nike then are the last people to leave the building because they, they, they continue to support the cheats. And she said, when you put out ads as Nike have about the purity of sport, and then you fund the underbelly of sport that's eroding the purity... That's a problem. And that's what Nike have done. And and I would love if people would seriously consider what brand they bought. In other words, do you really want to support a brand that says it believes in sport and then funds cheats? I mean, Alberto Salazar is going to take his case now to the Court of Arbitration, which he's absolutely entitled to do. Nike have a choice. Do we fund this man's case or do we say, sorry, Alberto, you broke the rules. They're funding him. Thank you very much, David Walsh. That was fascinating. We'd like to make two points clear. Afiwe Dianti has strenuously denied taking any banned substance intentionally or negligently. And secondly, South African rugby says it tests and educates more aggressively at schoolboy level than any other federation and that incidents of doping at senior level is in line with international norms. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.